I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Welcome everyone. Um, I'm Sana Goyal. I'm the deputy editor at Wazafiri magazine. Um, I'm also one of the judges for this year's um, Orwell Prize for Political Fiction. It's just such a pleasure, such a pleasure to be doing this with Yara and Isabel today. Um, we're going to be um, treated to some short readings and then we'll be in conversation and then we'll open the floor for questions. Um, do either of you want to start? Maybe. What's your preference? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, I can go to, and, yeah? and then it will be done. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be really exciting and wonderful. Okay. Um, I won't, I'm not going to do a long one, is that? That's so, fine. Okay. Yeah, I think it's actually quite self-explanatory, hopefully. Um, so this is the start of a section that's set in um, 1993 South London, um, near first down Tooting area, if anyone is familiar. Um. <laughs> Good cheering for you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, baby Melissa never cried. Sleep, her mother said, and she would. The night she was born, St George's Hospital in Tooting, South London, was overfull. The trees in the suburban streets surrounding the hospital were overfull. The air was too hot, too humid. It was August 1993. The wards should have been empty, relatively speaking, seasonally speaking. But it was a hot, hot night, and people were collapsing of dehydration all over the city. In the ten minutes after Melissa was born, Gladia was alone. She closed her eyes, small, hot ribs against her palm. Outside, a sweet bin bag smell rose through the hot night air around the hospital and the surrounding streets. Baby Melissa never cried. Sleep, her mother said, and she would. In the winter after her husband left, after the altercation in the bath, which had been loud enough to wake the neighbours, a policeman asked Melissa's mother the following questions. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N. To which Gladia, worried that her English would not be good and correct enough, replied, Yes, no. Yes, yes, no, no, yes, no. He has left. Yes, yes, here is my passport. Gladia was holding her baby. Jiggle, jiggle. Right, the policewoman said. It was hard to know exactly how old Jean, Janine and Jasmine, who lived on their street, were. They'd been on the cul-de-sac called Amen Corner since their houses had been built in craters left by World War II. They were old enough for their husbands to have died at a diable, viable age a while ago, apart from Jean's husband who, if, as if dead, never left his armchair. They had accents. 
they had come from somewhere, not there, some time ago, on ships and boats and planes. When the policewomen came in to ask questions, they were each in their own living rooms. Oh, I was just about to put a kettle, just about to make a brew. How many sugars is yours, officer? In answer to the policewoman's questions, Jean said, Oh, yes, I've known Gloria and her husband since they moved to the street. Oh, it would be about two years ago? Yes, I wanted to help her out, so I put some notices up saying, call this number for a cleaner in the church and the play centre, you know, when she got her, while she got her nursing qualifications here. She was already pregnant. The most glowing look it always is. In answer to the policewoman's questions, Jasmine said, oh, Tuesday? Oh, Wednesday? The neighbours heard it. Well, I am her neighbour and I didn't hear, no, no, I heard nothing. There was an altercation, you say. Good riddance to him then, I say. <laughs> Gosh. In answer to the policewoman's questions, Janine said, yes, oh yes, she often leaves the baby with me when she is shopping or out cleaning houses. And yes, that is, her, that is right, her paperwork is all in order, quite in order. Gosh. That winter was cold, and the dark came in the afternoons. For two weeks, they slept at Jasmine's, where the heating was on. Jasmine kept the covers on all her chairs. Jasmine kept the plastic covers on her chairs. All the white of all the walls was covered in photographs of her children and grandchildren. In the cot next to the bed, Gloria listened to her daughter's baby body breathe. And then... And then, as delicately and as surely as the white lilac nights had turned to black, the cold air thawed and the days linger lengthened into the flower-crowned spring again. Here was a beginning. Thank you so much. Hello. Okay. Um, so I'm actually now going to read something different to what I was going to read. I also wanted to briefly say, hi, I'm Isabel. I'm, I'm going to be keeping my mask on. I'm really, really sorry about that. I live with someone who's really, really vulnerable to COVID. So I hope you guys can hear me okay. I think we tested it. It's, it seems to be absolutely fine. Thank you for, for understanding. Um, so this book, for those of you who haven't read it, it's, to sum it up in a sentence, it's like a, a really surreal um, inquiry into some very, very real and lived and felt effects of governmental control and state violence on um, um, queer trans people, black people and people um, with a background of migration in the UK specifically. So it uses these surreal um, kind of um, writing strategies, I guess. I don't know. I'm just sort of I'm telling you because otherwise you might be in for a shock. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm literally going to read the first, um, the first four pages. So there's nothing, nothing to, 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 no context to give you. I'm Sterling. Lost my father to AIDS, my mother to alcoholism. Lost my country to conservatism, my language to PTSD. Got this England, though. Got this body, this sterling heart. Today, I'm in a white football shirt wrapped around my waist like a skirt. Red velvet bullfighter jacket on and black Montera, traditional bullfighter hat. Yellow football socks, black leather loafers. 
Outside my flat on Delancey Street can the town six, seven actual bullfighters walk up, hustling me. Huh, they say. I keep my head down. Focus on loafers, familiar tarmac. Again, huh. Guttural call bullfighters used to get the fighting bull's attention. Still, head down. I keep walking. They follow. One torero waves, waves a pink gold capote, a bullfighting cape. Pink gold, pink gold, pink, 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 pink gold, pink gold. I lose my bearings. The bullfighters push me via Arlington Road into Mary Terrace off the main road. Feel kicked around like a football. My father, Franz Beckenbauer, played for Birthtown FC. He used to carry my sister in one arm, myself in the other, practicing kick-ups. I lost him to penalty shootouts and my sister to international migration. I lost my mother to bankruptcy, lost the ball, won it back. <laughs> Three fields estate surrounds Mary Terrace, windows like the eyes of so many emotional children. On the sixth floor of Fairfield House, one window is open. Distinct blue and white Karlsruhe SC poster on the wall, second Bundesliga. Down here, pink and gold, I charge wildly. The bullfighters flick their capotes away, gaining critical insights into my defensive behavior. Picador on horseback comes at me with a bullfighting lance. Picador is one of a pair of horsemen in a traditional bullfight who jabs the bull with a lance and also a British publishing house. <laughs> the cute horse wears no pitu, a mattress-like protective padding standard since the late 1920s at least. Instinctively, I flex, flex my horns. I attack, hitting the horse's flank. Horse goes down. The dismounted picador retreats quickly. Out of action, he goes to perch on the manual barrier that closes the estate to through traffic. A second picador on another equally unprotected, unprotected horse comes at me. He lances me just behind the Murillo, the complex of muscle at the fighting bull's ne neck and shoulders draws blood. The purpose of Tessio de Varas, the first of three stages of a traditional bullfight, is to weaken the bull's neck muscles and to impose the rules of the fight on him. Is it my fault? Did I elicit the violence or did I just fail to prevent it from happening? My jacket, too much? Not enough? The football socks? I knew a gay who looked straight like a gap advert. God hustles still. Bigger's blouse written all over his unisex t-shirt. Second stage, Tercio de Banderillas. Three Banderilleros, so-called, stab English Banderillas, barbed sticks wrapped in the colors of the St. George's cross into my shoulders. Three, four hanging off of me already, like garlands, like patriotic hairpins. Banderillero walks up, Banderillas raised, aiming. He brings them down and scurries away. Foul play, I call. Bullfighters are picking on me, literally. Referee, did you see? Yellow card? But ah, no referee. No free kick, Tercio de Muerte, the killing third. The matador, top bully, in his traditional suits of, suit of lights, named for its glossy embellishments, waves a muerta, a wooden stick with a smaller red cloth hanging off it. I charge. I have recourse to only the most basic defenses. Concave body, the matador flicks the muyeta away. I turn around, charge again. Again, the matador disappears the muyeta as soon as I get to it. We continue like this until I'm spent, 
I stand still, tongue hanging out. The matador maneuvers me into position. Point down, he raises his bullfighting sword over my head. Maybe I'll leave it here. <laughs> Thank you so much both for those incredible readings. I hope that gives you a sense of some of the really interesting things uh, both Yara and Isabel do with language, with, with prose and style, and um, with the way in which they use um, space on the page as well. Um, I want to begin with your early beginnings, both as a writer and for this novel in particular. Um, when did you begin writing? And um, when and how did um, There Are More Things and Sterling Carrot Gold begin? Was it a character, a landscape, an emotion? Yeah, do you know the answer? <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, so <laughs> um, with this book, um, I think it's, it changed a, a lot, but I, I started thinking about in 2016. Um, I guess it's when I became, like, properly politicised. Um, I think I went from being like, oh, austerity, that's terrible, we should reverse that, <laughs> to being like, abolish the state. Um, <laughs> um, and um, so I was interested in the fact that uh, in Brazil and in the UK, we had both, we'd had these periods of sort of centre-left governments where everyone felt really optimistic and good about, like, less poverty, more investment in infrastructure and public services. And then, um, and then in 2016, there was the impeachment of Dilma, and in 2017, there was Brexit and these sort of... Um, I guess for me, it was being like, oh, right, centrism, this isn't things going wrong. This is like what happens when you have, you know, liberals running things is that it paves the road to the rise of fascism. And it was interesting seeing that in both places in, in like, very different ways, but still I was interested in that. Um, and so I was interested in this idea of, like, writing something that was about widening our political horizons beyond being like the things that we're told we're not even meant to ask for like oh tuition fees being abolished that's unrealistic like okay well within living memory people were like doing revolutions and dictatorships were established to stop them um so I was interested in that and then also Southern Archivist my first book was also thinking about particularly like right right wing Brazilians in Sao Paulo and then also, like, migration and blah, blah. But it was much more about one person's kind of individual coming to terms with that and identity. And I wanted to write a book about the Brazilian women in England that was not really about identity or bonding over identity, but actually about bonds of solidarity. Um, so those were the ideas in my head that eventually led to the thing, yeah. I could say um, lots of things. <laughs> I think... Um, I write, um, this, let's start from the identity position, I write as a queer trans, my person from a working class background, um, and also from a background of migration. So that shapes absolutely everything I do. So because that is also, um, specifically in the context of literature, that is kind of quite a rare um, subject position to inhabit. Um, the, the intersection of all of these various 
<coughs> various whatever you might want to call them. So um, this is kind of my books, We Are Made of Diamond Stuff, as well as Sterling. They deal with the queer working class experience mm -hmm. in the UK. And uh, they both do precisely that. And I think probably all my books for the rest of my entire life will, will kind of deal with that because the, the world sort of around me changes. I change clearly. So this is the kind of um, um, situation that inspires me. With this particular book, the beginning of it some, is sometimes as, as ludicrous as the name. So I started with the name, and then suddenly this character Sterling emerged from emerged from mm -hmm. from this. But I will also say, whilst I seem to have random starting points, they sometimes work out, and they sometimes don't work out. So what happened with my last two books? I've been working on books for almost a year that then didn't turn out in the way I wanted it, and then I hit upon some of the themes and subject, mm. subject matters that became relevant for Sterling, and it just came together. So it was a kind of a, a, a long writing process, given that there was a book that didn't work out first, and also kind of a relatively quick writing process, because mm. once I had this, it sort of came together quite fast. That's really interesting. And like speaking of writing choices, I kind of want to dig into your writing process a little bit and your creative practice. Um, tell us about your good days and your bad days. Um, how do you overcome a writing block? What keeps you going? Do you have a particular sort of ritual? I try to like not romanticize it mm. and be like, it's work. So like, it's the thing you need like good working conditions for basically. Mm -hmm. Like, um, you need to have, like, you need to be able to afford to live in order to make space to work mm -hmm. on something, if that doesn't make sense. But, like, you need to be paid properly mm -hmm. and to have a desk and all these different things. So, like, the things that get in the way of writing, like, usually are quite material. Mm. Um, and, yeah, um, during the pandemic, I was getting these self-employed grants from the government, and though they were really good writing conditions, actually, because it was kind of like a UBI for a bit. And that's when I wrote a lot of this was mm -hmm. like, OK, well, I can just be paid to write this then. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a very sexy answer. But. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really a um, smart answer for, for me as well. I mean, the, the interesting thing is, that I've been writing this kind of work for full time, probably for 20 years. I'm like older compared to, so I've been writing this work for 20 years, many of those unpublished. Mm. But um, that, so my problem was never really having a writer's block. My problem was being blocked out of the publishing industry. So that was a bigger problem. I always had a lot of material. I always had um, a lot of inspiration. I don't struggle so much with the discipline of writing itself. To me, to some extent, it's also an escape because I always worked other jobs, always, 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 whether they were used to be minimum wage jobs for up until I was 40. And then finally, I made my way up to, to work at a university job. So now I'm much more sorted. But um, in terms of the work I produced, that that was some the, the kind of barriers to it mm. were actually more sort of to do with access. Can you talk a little bit more about that about gatekeeping and 
um, the publishing industry and your kind of journey with like um, independent presses? Yeah, it's a it's 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 a long, long, long story in mm. a way because to begin with, there isn't even a gate. <laughs> you don't even you're not even encountering the gatekeepers. If mm. you're like a working class queer person who's not from London or not from England. Um, my other friends were mainly in the art world. There wasn't, there weren't any working class writers. Nobody was a novelist. I just suddenly decided to be a novelist, like random. I decided, <laughs> I decided it. I knew that that was what I was going to be. Mm. And then, but I knew nobody else who was in any way, shape, or form <clears throat> connected to the the literary industry. So my first publications were put up by art publishers, mm. by like, or pamphlet type things, or. Like I, like in my twenties, I used to photocopy stuff and 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 sold it in the record shop where I used to work. So really, really, really a long grassroots development. And then my first books that were sort of more properly published, they were with a tiny, tiny publisher called Dostoevsky Wannabe, and they um, were up in Manchester. And um, the books did really, really well. So the books, even though that, we, that was a tiny micro-publisher, um, they sold lots of copies, they were shortlisted for every prize we submitted it to, <laughs> which was only two, but, <laughs> but they were like big prizes, I'm not kidding, kidding. Mm. so it was like, um, they did very well, and um, I did also put a lot of work into um, creating a queer community, or helping to create a queer community of writers. Like, mm. I did events at the ICA for some time with some friend of mine called Queer Street This. So there was, like, more of an emergent queer writing scene happening that didn't exist 10 years ago, I promise you. Not in that way. So in this context, then, I then, um, also then my publisher, Peninsula Press, they were very... They were obviously totally on the ball, so they basically... They signed Sterling before I'd even written a word. So on the back of like some of the <clears throat> some of the interest or some of the work I'd produced with the tiny micropress, um, Sam then just said, "Oh, do you want to do the next book?" And I, I love their press. They're the people from Burley Fisher as well. So. Um, and they they now published the back catalog. <laughs> so they then published We Are Made of Diamond stuff as well. But yeah, it's like you know. I think um, I still only now I had to literally win the Goldsmith Prize to get an agent. <laughs> I'm not joking with you. So that's 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 I had to. I sometimes feel like I had to do ten times as much work as some other people. I met to reach a similar level of embeddedness in the in the literary industry or whatever. I'm really glad you decided to do. No, I just think that's true. <laughs> yeah, to agree. Um, I'm really glad you brought up the Goldsmith Prize as well. And I think perhaps it's a little bit of a selfish question because of my own research around prizes. But, um, you know, we all know prizes can be both good and bad. Um, you've both been nominated for the Orwell Prize for Political Fiction. I wanted to get your thoughts on literary prize cultures, particularly in the UK, um, but also what political fiction means to you. And maybe we can tackle the first one first, Ran. Yeah, I guess it's, it's quite hard to separate what I think about prize culture and mm. I'm aware I'm sat next to an expert but, um, <laughs> so you have to like correct us and tell you, us what you think afterwards but to separate it from the publishing industry as a whole mm. um, I think 
that, um, yeah, like mainstream publishers exist to turn a profit, not to make art, um, but you're not really allowed to, no one really says that. Um, and um, doesn't mean there aren't loads of great people working in the industry, but like that is what's happening when they acquire your book and when they turn it into a book rather than a photocopied PDF, right? Um, and um, yeah, I think it, I don't know, I don't want to go, oh, I, I think that it, <laughs> it means that like, I think um, it does lead to really absurd things like certain books getting a lot of investment that are like a bit rubbish and just trend chasing or mm. whatever and everyone's going around being like it's amazing it's the last thing I read this year yeah. and like it's just not True. and but, like and then you're just like I don't understand have I gone crazy what's happening like um and then and then you also have like really wonderful political like absolutely hilarious books like Sarah and Carrot, Carrot Gold where yeah it has to win like some like very significant prize mm. before it will be like in lo the bookshops mm. right so that people can't even like read it to decide for themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think the publishing industry is doesn't necessarily like put the good books out there, I suppose, because it's trying to make money instead. Mm -hmm. And then, so I guess that's the first thing, the context. And then for prizes, I suppose a prize can be a wonderful thing, like for example, the Goldsmiths Prize. Um, and yeah, and you were nominated twice and I was there when you did readings the first time. It was very cool. <laughs> um, we went together. And um, so it can be a wonderful thing <laughs> because it can um, suddenly create all of this attention around mm -hmm. books that otherwise aren't being invested in um, for those reasons. But also, like, it's also just like a set of random people deciding that. Um, like, it's still quite random. Mm -hmm. Um, and I also think, I don't know, I, sometimes I see like a prize that's open to like all kinds of books published in the UK and it's just won by like a big book from the US <laughs> and like, what was the point of that prize? Like you haven't told us about any new books, you haven't, it's not like being like, hi, this is Milkman, it's a genius piece of work that mm. everyone's been neglecting. Like that's a prize doing a fantastic piece of work, but a prize being like, Oh, we, we all like that book that's already very famous. Like, what was, like it just homogenizes the market mm. and it actually like impoverishes the literature. Like, a good prize will make the literature more diverse and um, like help counterbalance the, yeah. So that's, sorry, rant mm -hmm. over. <laughs> right answer. Yeah, yeah everything you have said. I completely agree. Um, yeah, in my particular case, I mean, it's quite funny. Um, I've sort of written a new novel that will hopefully be out at some point. It's going to be a while, I hope, I think, I don't know. But it's all about this person who won a big prize. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is like my next novel. And, and then like the sort of the, the sort of a little bit the horrors of so-called social mobility. So it works with some horror genre conventions and stuff like that. So whatever, I'm looking at this a little bit, this mm -hmm. sort of, um, but that's just on the side. What I will say in my case, the, the prize shortlistings and ultimately the prize win, at especially the Goldsmiths, for me, made a massive difference. Massive, massive. In fact, for me, it feels like it was the only route in 
but that's an insane thing to say because it's not necessarily reproducible mm. to anyone. You can't go and say, right, that's what you have to do. You know, I can't say to young, um, to, to young queers or young um, writers of color, whatever, I can't say, all you have to do is you write for 20 years and then eventually <laughs> you might get shortlisted for something and eventually you might win it. And the, mm. It's not a strategy mm. that, that works to, to, to affect significant change in the, in the literary landscape or the publishing industry. But for me personally, it kind of meant everything. But I, I don't want to take away from what Yara said. I think some of the prizes that just give the prize to the book that we already all know, or they give, um, I like American literature as much as everybody else, but sometimes um, if a prize has like a new, a new diversity agenda, they like to give the prize to American, mm people of color or American queer people of color and to some extent that sort of erases mm. um, the problems we have in our own country so it's a strategy that I've seen um, prices adopt and I've seen the publishing industry adopt suddenly all the publishers are very putting out very diverse stuff but it is not from this country and I'm obviously not nationalist in the sense of <laughs> hyper focus on British but I'm saying it functions as a, a cover up in a way mm. yeah I completely agree yeah. what did you think about price culture yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not today <laughs> um, <laughs> when you finish your duties as the chair then maybe you can <laughs> um, yeah I want to talk a little bit about political fiction um, <laughs> moving on swiftly um, you know, you bo both your stories make these like really interesting like disruptions and interventions in existing stories and ways of storytelling, I think, through form and content. Um, you know, it cuts through these like received notions of clarity. Um, it brought me really great pleasure to nominate these novels in an attempt to really kind of broaden the myopia around what prose should look like or prize winning prose should look like. Um, and I just wonder if you had any thoughts on political fiction and what that means to you and why you chose fiction to tell these stories. Is it unfair? I start and otherwise <laughs> I get time to think in YouTube. Um, I don't know why I chose... I was always... Um, I was... Um, I could probably... I think... Um, yeah, why do I choose fiction? I think fiction is still... Fiction meant a lot to me as a very, very young person. It meant everything to me. I had sort of um, access to... Access to... As I did... I got, went to school in Germany and we had access to um, interesting literature that neither of my parents were readers whatsoever. There's not a single book in our household. Um, so I, I was introduced to literature at school mm. and then as somebody who's from a quite conservative part of Germany, especially then in terms of queer people, um, to me that was like a complete eye-opener and I, I just <clears throat> never, <clears throat> never forgot what literature did for me, it kind of saved me. And I mean, even in later life, even when I came to London, because I didn't come, I did, when I came, I didn't come to study, I didn't come to, to any, for any goal, I just sort of escaped where I was from. So for me, the literature was the ambitious thing to do, so I'm completely self-taught as well, up until I just did a, P, I, up until I ended up doing a PhD, but I didn't do a, degree, I didn't do an MA, nothing. I was self-taught up until this up until this point. So literature meant something to me. Mm. That's why I do everything in fiction. 
So it's a personal reason, I guess. I think it can be done in art, it can be done in non-fiction, it can be done mm -hmm. in other media mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because I thought a lot about, I was thinking a lot about what you also write in, um, in Sterling Carrot Gold, like there's that bit in it where you kind of give you a mini theory of the book. I can't, I'm going to summarize it wrong, but it's a bit like sometimes you, you need to like put a spaceship in the world to like break through and be like, oh, this is all bullshit. Like, of course, like there are other ways. And so I feel like that you use fiction to really kind of show how absurd the real world mm -hmm. is. Mm -hmm. And also, but it's so funny and, and joyful as well, your work. Like, there's this bit where um, I was reading it at home, and I, I live with my best friend. And there's this bit where um, all these animals are described as, like, giraffe cutie, oh, yeah. elephant cutie. <laughs> and I was like, to my flatmate, like, I need to tell you about this. And she was like, that's the kind of shit we say when we're high. Like, <laughs> like and it's in the book. Like, I love that. And I was like, I love it too. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, so there's just, and then there's also a chapter where you have, like, I don't want to spoil it. It's not a spoiler or anything, but um, Justin Fashionu mm -hmm. is the, the dad's boyfriend. And this whole chapter written to, it's like one of my favorite things I've read in ages. It's, um, and it's so, like, loving, but it's also, like, not fact. Like, it has to be fiction, right? Like, to have this world where just, a, you know, you can be so loving to this real person who definitely isn't connected to Sterling. He's not, you know, like... Yeah, so I think... I, I think... I can't imagine what you do not being that's fiction, true. and it's so yeah, right the way true. it is. Um, so what... But yeah, and so with... Um, and then there's some, some ideas around, like, imagination that I think are interesting as well, like... Um, I guess very similar to what you said about you have to break, um, show the absurdity of this world by whatever. Um, and there's, yeah, there's something about what I was interested in doing, using fiction as a place to introduce, like, imagining of better, more mm -hmm. um, than what exists currently. Mm -hmm. And you probably can do that with non-fiction, um, but I guess fiction maybe lends itself a bit to that kind of, um, like Sadia Hartman does her fabulation, but I think it's like mm. a similar, maybe like yearning um, for more. Um, and then another thing is like novelists that say their work isn't political are just being super naive and <laughs> not acknowledging the politics of their work. Mm. So It's actually conservative yeah. to, say, to say that. <laughs> no, yeah. <coughs> So I didn't buy that. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, I completely agree that actually <clears throat> we're both doing things that probably can't be done with non-fiction now that I had time to reflect. <laughs> it's really true. I mean, I think art can do a similar thing as fiction can, but it's true there's a certain um, freedom and a certain like joy that might be hard to inject into non-fiction in this current climate. Mm -hmm. And both the books sort of have that, they manage to mobilize some sort of a joy and maybe mm -hmm. even though it looks it looks at the rea reality, even though both the books look very much at reality of things, mm. there's some sort of joy that's arguably 
fiction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to mention as well that you know you're both interested in depicting lives that are marginalized in a variety of ways, but you do so with like so much humor and spark and joy and you cover themes that are like significant and serious, but your style is playful and experimental and light and airy. And this is, these are stories about friendship, about sisterhood. And how do you maintain that balance? Like, why is it important for you to do that, do you think? The balance between the kind of the seriousness of the subjects you're yeah. dealing with and like yeah. doing it with the kind of like with humor, with joy, yeah. with love. That's a really good question. And actually, yeah, that's true. That I've been asked that before because it, that seems to be a defining characteristic of my work and arguably also Yara's. It's, um, it's kind of, to me, it comes quite naturally because I would say that is a little bit how my entire life has been. It's always been difficult. It's never been a stroll in the park. But at the same time, I also sometimes thought that I'm experiencing more joy and more fun <laughs> compared to some other people who have a, I, who potentially have a more um, straightforward life. And I don't want to glamorize this thing, you know, that the people on the margins have more fun, but maybe we do. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. At least there's not this, um, this sort of boredom and this pre- predictability there. And that's not necessarily because of the hardship, mm. but it's something that also comes from, I think it's inherently queer, arguably, that we, we sort of have to master some kind of a, we, we sort of, we know how to fight for our joy. It's part of the entire culture that we're situated within and the, the, the histories and traditions of queerness that we, that we partly live. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. Um, I was at like a LGSM, banner making thing the other day and um someone was like oh the queer banners are always better (laughs) they just look good (laughs) um and it's true they had only provided paints within a certain color scheme so it did like match better but um (laughs) it was it was good but um I think also um like I I personally like it I thought a lot about this because there's some death in this book and I didn't, I didn't like to do that. But, um, and I, I just maybe goes back to what we were saying about the publishing <laughs> industry, but um, like, and you see it in films as well, but there is a type of book that's easy to read, doesn't take a lot of risks, depicts working class life or people of color or mm. what, migrants or whatever, and is like, like, here's a sad book, you're going to cry at the end, you're going to be like, oh my god, like, wow, that's so hard, that's so awful, I suddenly realised they're human, like, um, <laughs> thank you for writing that book and telling me, and um, I think that is, I don't want to write that shit, like, I think, um, I think, like, that kind of voyeuristic catharsis um, is is like, if anything, like depoliticizing, like it doesn't make people agitated. Like if it's, if it's for the, let, let's say if you're, it's being sold to people who don't belong to that identity, right? Like people obviously don't want to read about their own suffering, but generally speaking. Um, so yeah, people can be like, wow, thank you for that, you know, like a Holocaust book or whatever. I'm going to carry on with my life now. I'm not going to change the way I am. I'm not going to ask for better in the world. I'm just gonna have had that experience and that little cry. Like I don't, I don't think I'm not interested in reading or writing that. Um, 
and um, yeah, there's like there's um, a queer poet and playwright who's very amazing called Liv Winter, and they did a play called The Rise of the Refrain about this Greek chorus that unionizes, and like there's this bit where they like address the audience and they're like, if you were hoping for a cry, like you should want better for yourself. <laughs> um, so yes. <laughs> I have a question around re defying readers' expectations and making readers do the work, but I think some of you may have questions too. <laughs> so um, we'll come back to that. Um, I think if we can, if anyone has any questions and wants to kind of raise their hands just a little bit, Claire's going to come over with a mic. Yeah, this is a very basic question, um, but I'm so interested in learning about people's like actual writing processes, like. Do you make yourself a cup of tea and coffee or like sit down? Um, and also, I always say that like, if I'm having a bad day and I can't come up with anything, I just scrap it, I don't push through. But do you guys push through those days where you just, everything is shit and you can't? Yeah, anyways, sorry. <laughs> so, um, usually I would, um, try and do admin tasks in the morning so I don't feel guilty about them. Um, and then I would... So for this book, it was a lot in lockdown and it was in my bedroom. It's not ideal. I sat on my bed um, and I just listened to a song on repeat that, that makes me feel a bit excited but not too involved. And then um, just, like, just get... Good, go with it and I think it depends where I'm at in the process if it's like I know about this book I know what the characters are I know what the scene has to do then it's more like coloring in and like then you, then I do push through because um, it, I don't actually need to make decisions really I just need to to make it and then um, but if it's more at the beginning conceptual stage then I'll, I wouldn't be able to just I'd try and actually block out some time and like go do research or read more, or spend time drawing. I do a lot of big mind drawings, like, oh, this character's this colour, this character's this colour, and how often is this theme coming up and drawing it out and things like that. And then I can't really push through. If you're not up for that, it's a bit hard, isn't it? So <laughs> I think that's, um, yeah, maybe if I hope that's helpful. It's kind of similar. I think when it comes to like an editing stage, you can stay with it all the time I can. Then I find it hard to not work on it. I can stay with it entire days if I have entire, like for months, for entire days. But um, at the beginning, I think there's some days when it's just not happening. And then you just leave it be. I do, I do it the other way around. I get up in the morning and then I okay. do it. Then I sort of write. But sometimes, especially at, the, especially at the very beginning, when you have to invent all that stuff, then that can be hard sometimes. Mm. And um, yeah, there's days when you just shouldn't push yourself. And it's, just, it's better to then leave it and try again the next day. And, and trust that your brain's like stewing it in the background. Mm. Um, I was very struck that you both said that lockdown gave you a space to write and some money to write and I was thinking it immediately made me think about the art group called Art Space which gives artists studios 
and, and that place and that time mm. is really, really important. And because we couldn't go out and do other things, we were absolutely forced. There was not, it had to come from our heads because there was sort of nowhere else for anything to come from. But now we're back to the real world and people having fun in other ways. Do you think there's a place for some, for more sort of um, bursaries for people mm. to write? And, and that perhaps the outcome of prizes or the precursor of prizes ought to be a bit of money and a bit of time mm. to write. Very much so, yeah. It definitely, it would absolutely, to have the time and to have, um, to be able to afford to do it is, is invaluable in that sense, absolutely. And, and then it's not just time and money, it's also energy. If we have, if we work in full-time jobs, it's, you know, you, there might be an hour at the beginning of the day, but you might be just not have the energy available. So yeah, I think it's really, really crucial to, so many of us are used to working in, despite the circumstances, but it would really help to, it would really help to, to, to support writers financially, absolutely. Mm -hmm. No, no, very true. Um, I think I read somewhere, and you'll know much more, but that different proposals around like what could exist instead of prizes, and mm. some something that I think I read about was like just a pool of money that's given out to writers every year instead of a prize. It's like, well, you apply if they like it, then you get like a whatever, like mm -hmm. the national one of the things that they give out or something like that. I don't know. Um, but when I was doing my first book, I was on a lot of, like, debut women author panels. And they were basically, like... They were really funny because sometimes there would be, like, nothing in common between the books. But mm. um, it would be, like, young women like me who had finished university, gone to university, like, probably come from more, like, financially, like, well-off backgrounds. Like, I was living with my parents when I was writing in London, for example. Um, so it was, like, young women in their 20s of a certain, usually like financial background and education, and then like women whose children were at least 10. Like they were the two genres of mostly people on the panels because obviously like if you're working and looking after children, it's quite hard to write a book. So yeah. So yeah, more money. Yeah. Um, very basic question. Um, in terms of research, how do you go, what was your research process? Is it kind of at the start? Is it sort of during? Because you know, you're researching quite complex characters with, within various different spheres, from a, from a political side, from a, a gender side, from a, you know, going through all of that. You know, it, it must be quite complex. Can you just give us a view of how, how you go about how the research process? I think it's sort of quite accumulative. In my case, it's kind of very accumulative. So I don't necessarily go out and research a, a new book, but I have been educating myself obsessively since, the, since, since my mid-20s, mainly in public libraries to begin with. For example, Swiss Cottage Public Library is quite amazing. But um, I've, I've never stopped now with the internet. It's much, much easier. You know, you can get a hold of stuff for free if you're if you're willing to commit small level crimes 
<laughs> but um, so, so it, it, I feel like I don't necessarily need to research gender in order to write a queer trans book. So it comes, mm. um, it comes, it's sort of very, very accumulative. I've been part of these debates for many, many years. But say with this new book, there's like a fo there's a football theme in there. I literally hate football. <laughs> oh, I feel really betrayed. I can't believe it. <laughs> I know. No, I don't know. No, I know nothing. The, the football is sort of like no. I don't. All right. I don't hate football. Just, that but I don't. I'm not. I didn't know anything about football. So I knew that um, I wanted it in there because it sort of represented. It, my dad in the book is a famous footballer. The protagonist's book is a famous footballer, and my personal dad used to play football. So there's always sort of autobiographical elements in there. <laughs> like he this yeah. So so it's like so there might be some a little area that I do research, like football, and in this case Justin Fashion, yeah. <laughs> who is like the first gay black footballer to come out as gay in the 90s, and I don't think there was ever, anyone ever since. But um, so yeah, but mainly I think in my case it's really accumulative. Mm. It's sort of stuff I've been mm. thinking about. It's like obsessions I've I've been thinking about for for years and years and years. Um, I just need some time to process. <laughs> um, yeah. So this this book did require a lot of research. Someone very special in the audience who was part of my research process is Adara, who sat over there, <laughs> my friend um, from Brazil. Um, Wave it. Yeah, so I was writing like outside of my experience, like quite a lot in this book, which is why I find it like particularly funny when it's called autofiction. It's like, no, I tried really hard to actually respectfully reproduce like do other people's experiences. But um, yeah, so there's so for the bit where there's a young woman growing up in in Recife or Linda in the northeast of Brazil, I was given. Um, Society of Authors grant for research to go to Brazil and I so I, I went there and I stayed with my family friends there and um, Isadora took me to the club we went you know to buses whatever like so I could see and we talked a lot like I was particularly interested in like um, what things that are very familiar to me about growing up in London like what are the norms around like teenagers drinking and having sex and contraception and things like that so Isadora was like, well, you know, people go to motels and this is what the motels are like. And then I wrote that this scene in the motel and I sent it to Isadora and she was like, no, it's sleazier. The motel's a drive-through. There isn't even a reception. <laughs> and, I like, and I was like, okay, okay, thanks for the edit. So like, it was stuff like, some stuff like, like that. Um, I also had a lot of conversations with people I grew up with um, about like class and race and gender and sexuality because the main character, Melissa, grows up where I grew up, goes to a school very similar to my school. Um, but she comes from a much more working class background than me. She's a single mom, and um, yeah, she's not white. Um, but I'm not sure. Sometimes people either just assume all Brazilians are brown, or that the main character looks like me. But it's in the book that she's not. And so I spent a lot of time being like, well, let's talk about that experience with different people, and never filching from people's lives, but just like talking about it a lot. So I talked to, like ten different people about it. And then the bit that required a lot of research is um, there's a section that's set in Brazil between 1969 and 74. And it's like kind of fabulation because it's about two women, one queer woman in the um, like revolutionary movement during that time. And there's not 
a lot of documentation around those experiences. Um, and so for that, I, I had a long conversation with my mum because she, she, her best friend at the time, they were in a whatever group and he was gay and um, they were doing like organising work and whatever, the higher-ups in the movement said to my mom, like, oh, you have to tell Paulinho, like, you know, it's fine that he's gay, but he can't be with the people. He has to be writing up pamphlets because the people can't know that he's mm. gay because they'll think it's weird and, you know, like, sure. As if there are no gay... Well, so then my mom had to tell Paulinho this. So she tells Paulinho this and then she vomits on the side of her car and then they leave the revolution, they leave the movement. That's what happened. So that doesn't happen in my book. But, but there is a story about how I create a story and a space for, like, queer women in that. And maybe, I don't know if it's real, right? Like, yeah, whatever. Is it like, I know it's not real, I made it up, but I don't know what, what those people's lives are like. Um, and then some of the sources I looked at, again, like, during lockdown, there's a lot of really cool stuff online. There's, um, there, there's a, a Truth Commission report that was produced by the Brazilian government in 2014 that looks into crimes by the state during this time um, and that's really I thought it was much more readable than I thought it was going to be it's in Portuguese and there's also this incredible document which is um, so there were these like armed revolutionaries who went to try and establish a liberated zone in the forest it's like there were the urban guerrillas and then there were these people and it's like as if we like were like let's get some cash and coughs and go like they were not ready and they were um, eventually completely slaughtered by the military um, in Araguaia. And there's... Um, in 2011, this journalist leaked the diary of a commander in that group. And um, before it had been seized by the government, the Brazilian government, and, like, not shared since. And in 2011, this journalist, like, published it with this magazine. And, like, it's completely incredible. It's like, today we all had diarrhea from eating too many cashews. Or, like... <laughs> Uh, we had a party today and, like, um, the, the local people came. And so there was just, like, all of this stuff in there that was so, like, human and mm. whatever. And, um, yeah, I'm going to stop going on about it. But there's bits at the back of the book about the things I read and whatever, where they are and stuff. So, yeah. We'll take one last question. Um, you touched on it just now, Yara, but a lot of young writers and queer writers and writers of colour seem to be asked a lot about how much of their work is autobiographical, whether they themselves are the main character. Do you think that's a useful question? Do you think that misses the point? Does it annoy you when people ask you that? I'm really aware that that, that, that is definitely a, a talking point and lots of writers are really annoyed by it. As if, you know, if you're, as soon as you're like, a, say, for example, a black woman writer, the only thing you can write about, your, your horizon stops at your own experience. Mm. So, personally, it doesn't annoy me that much because my, my work is so other. It involves, it sort of, it sort of gathers up so many other um, themes and, and um, so many, so, so such far-fetched material in a way that I don't mind that I'm sort of at the center mm -hmm. to some extent. But I really completely understand why that, why that would be a problematic expectation to have mm -hmm. of, of, of other writers, very true. 
Um, I, I don't mind being asked. I think that's like polite and in interesting. And I'm always very interested and think I can tell what writers put <laughs> in from their real life. Um, but um, but what, what I don't like is when it's assumed. Um, and it's, I find it also like a very silly assumption because how, how do you think you can know that? Like, you know, yeah, like what? Like, you don't know me. <laughs> Um, and I think it gets problematic for me when, for example, with Stubborn Archivist, when people call that autofiction, that made me feel like I was being outed as a survivor of sexual assault. Mm. Like, how can you go around saying, this is a book that's autofiction, the author's never said it is, and it's about stuff that's, like, really actually difficult? And I think it's important to respect that, like, if someone doesn't disclose to you, you can't just go around being like, this is their real life. Um, and I feel that... Less with this book because I'm like, I just know I worked so hard to make up a lot of it. But again, like, I think to go around calling it autofiction, like, okay, am I being outed there? Like, I think it's really, I find it very rude because of that and I feel like violated. But um, there's also just like nothing actually wrong with autofiction or taking stuff from your own life. And there's this problem that because a lot of people use it in a way to like cheapen writing that's about women or about interiority or like whatever. So, I think there are a few different things there, like A, it's fine if it is real, <laughs> B, like, you don't owe anyone that information, um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I have a few more questions, but I think we'll stop here for the evening. Um, thank you to the London Review Bookshop for having us, um, thank you to the Orwell Prize, um, thank you to Yara and Isabel. Um, thank you to you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.